We are moving at breakneck speed right now through the Old Testament. We covered First and Second Samuel last week, First and Second Kings this week, and Lord willing, First and Second Chronicles next week. According to the original, um, well, by original, the the I mean the chart that we received at the beginning, where the Old Testament is divided according to the Hebrew order of the uh, Old Testament, we are concluding now the former prophets. So this, uh, these books of Kings are the final ones in the former prophets. Now the former prophets uh, it includes Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, and it describes the life of Israel under the covenant in the land. And then the latter prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the minor prophets. And so this here is the covenant history of Israel, what it looked like to live as Israel under the covenant in the land. And it's a narrative arc of Israel since the Abrahamic covenant. That's what the former prophets covers. And it covers this book, these books in particular, First and Second Kings, cover 400 years of the life of Israel, specifically from the end of David's life through the exile of Judah into Babylon, uh, including, um, I already said that, including the life and the end of Israel, the northern kingdom. So what do you remember in the books of Kings? Uh, what are some of those stories that um, that we associate or th- that we often retell in our Christian world uh, that are that come from these books? What do we have? Ninety-five percent of them did what was right in their own eyes and utterly failed mm-hmm. to do what was right in God's law. Speaking specifically of the kings, yes, yes, ninety-five percent of them are not following God's law. That's right, follow their own wisdom. Yes, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Very famous. It's a pretty, yeah, pretty wonderful story. Called down fire from heaven, soaked the altar first, and just put to shame the prophets of Baal. It's Elijah. Wasn't Elijah taken up on a chariot? Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry, I thought you said Elisha. Yeah, I always... Did, did both get caught? No. Uh, I think it's just Elijah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Elijah witnessed it? Yeah. Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, was, he was like the success. He was his heir apparent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Elijah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Solomon threatens to cut a baby in half. Oh, man. Classic story. <laughs> so wise. It, honestly... Honestly, every time I read that story, I am touched to the heart. I really am. It is an incredible display of that wisdom that God had given him. Oh, we could play this game all night. These books are loaded. Hezekiah. Yes. Hezekiah and the prayer. Um, the Lord granting him 15 more years and his, as his trust in the Lord. We've mentioned Josiah multiple times, especially as we've gone through Deuteronomy. He's in here. Uh, I think as we talk about First and Second Kings, um, the the resources I've used um, primarily have not differentiated First and Second Kings. So I may, in my mind, be going back and forth between First and Second Kings as I uh, talk about some of these things. So forgive me on that. They were originally one book, just like Samuel, but because of the length of the text on a scroll, it was divided into two. Uh, and in fact, it is a quite an awkward division. Um, 
if you look at the structure, the outline, you see it's right in the middle of the Elijah narratives that it's divided. It's not really even a natural division between the two books. It's right in the middle of the, the life of um, the divided kingdom as Elijah. That's exactly it. It's exactly just they ran out of paper. Yeah. Also paralleled by Second Chronicles, they kind of overlap and tell the same story from two different perspectives. Yeah. Yeah, so the Chronicles uh, narrative is, it comes from much later, a later time, and it's reflecting on what's gone on in the life of Israel. I don't want to spoil too much. Come back next week and hear what makes Chronicles different. Um, but if you want... <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Did I say don't come back? Oh, no, no, no. Uh, oh. You didn't want to spoil it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, you're right. It's yeah, you're right. It's not just the same. And in fact, if you really um, like the the stories of wicked kings in the north, you'll be sorely disappointed by Chronicles, um, because the focus is on the south uh, for theological reasons. Um, so that's that's in Chronicles. We'll, we'll, we'll dig into that one next time. Solomon began his reign around 970 BC. Don't forget that in BC the numbers go backward. Uh, and the last date mentioned in the book of uh, books of the Kings is around 561, the very uh, toward the very end. It's called the 37th year of the exile. Exile began in 586, so 37 years into it, that's the last thing we hear about. Uh, Kings is a chronological historical work. This it, it very um, closely follows the chronology of what happened. Now, uh, there are times where, because you have simultaneously things happening in the northern kingdom and in the southern kingdom, the the teller of the stories will, will tell you, hey, here's what's happening in the north, and they'll finish the reign of that king and then kind of go back and, and hit the king who was uh, contemporary and then finish the story and then jump up north and then keep going. It doesn't divide the stories into pieces. So um, there's a little bit of jumping around, but it's, um, it's done with... I think it makes sense. You don't want to divide those stories. Uh, not that I had any say on it. Uh, but some people have questioned how historical is it? Uh, was nation was Israel really a nation that existed in this way in the ancient Near East? And I'll just flip over to the back for a minute, and you'll see some um, examples of uh, two, two prime examples of archaeological evidence that show us that... Um, at least in the basic structures of how Israel existed in the land, this is, this is attested not just by the Bible itself, which we believe is enough, but also from extra-biblical or outside-biblical sources. First of all, you have the Moabite stone, which correlates with Second Kings 3. And the Moabite stone, also called the Meshastela, is from around 840 B.C., so very old. Uh, very, I mean, it's, it's, that is the exact time that, that things are going on in the events of this book. And it describes from Moab's perspective the Moabite rebellion. Uh, as uh, the, the Second Kings 3 calls it the Moabite rebellion, the Moabite stone puts it this way and talks about from their theological perspective, uh, line 14, Chemosh, uh, Chemosh excuse me, said to me, Go, take Nebo from Israel. I went in the night and I fought there from dawn until noon. I took it and killed everyone, 7,000 men, boys, women, daughters, and pregnant women because I devoted it to the altar Chemosh. I took from there the hearth altars of Yahweh and I brought them before Chemosh. The king of Israel had built Yehaz and he lived there while fighting against me, but Chemosh drove them out before me. And then you jump down a ways. Uh, and it, there seems to be an indication here of the house of David. Um, that word, uh, the first part, first half of the word David is actually not as 
clear on the inscription as we would like it to be, but it seems to be that's what it's what it's saying there. Um, so there's just a, an example from the Moabite perspective of the Moabite rebellion, saying theologically, Chemosh gave us this land, that's why we went in. Of course, uh, we understand that the true understanding from Scripture is that uh, in Israel's failure to obey, the Lord brought judgment upon them. Uh, with the punishment of uh, another nation, with the, the difficulty of the Moabites coming against them. So this gives us uh, a bit of a, it kind of ties us in history to say, yeah, these things are really happening. It's not just a bunch of made-up stories. Like you, can, you can track this. Also, the black obelisk of Shalmaneser III. Uh, this was uh, set up in 825, so uh, the same ballpark. And it depicts Jehu, king of Israel, bowing down to Shalmaneser of Assyria. And this course, Shalmaneser the uh, third, and this corresponds to Jehu's reign in Second Kings nine and ten. The inscription reads: "I received the tribute of Jehu of the house of Omri, which is also the name for Israel. Silver, gold, a golden bowl, a golden goblet, golden cups, golden buckets, ten, a staff of the king's hand, and javelins." And they're not quite sure if javelins was what was used there. Um, but you can see there the person bowing down in that uh, zoomed-in inscription. That's Jehu bowing down to Shalmaneser the third, and that is a highlight from that big, tall, black obelisk. So that's just a little bit to, to say. This is a very uh, chronological historical work. Uh, it is has lots of um, indicators of that, especially as it is told throughout in this blank uh, year of King So and So. This happened. Like the chronology is important. Uh, let's see. But it's all told with a theological purpose. The story of Hezekiah is three chapters, but you can see five kings summarized in one chapter. That's because the person who wrote or compiled kings um, really was fast-forwarding through some kings, not to give all the details, but to make a theological point about how God is using Israel and working in Israel. So Hezekiah's story takes more time, more detail was given there to make the point, and these other kings were kind of fast-forwarded through um, in order to, so that the author could get to, to highlight what the Lord was doing in Israel. Authorship is unknown, though it's likely a Judean, that is a, in the, from the southern uh, part of the kingdom of Israel, likely a Judean author or compiler, because of the, there was so much emphasis on Judah. Uh, the lack of mention of Jeremiah has led some people to speculate that Jeremiah was the author, because Jeremiah is not mentioned in here, although he was um, living at the time. Various sources were used, and the books will actually tell, like the books of Kings tell you that they used this book called the Annals of the Kings of Judah, and it tells you that 15 times. And eight times, uh, kings will tell you that they use the annals of the kings of Israel. Excuse me, 18 times. And then uh, the book of the annals of Solomon is uh, mentioned once. Uh, and then there's uh, an instance in 1 Kings 8.8 8, uh, where uh, it's using a source that says, to this day, when in fact, whatever was said was not actually true by the time of the writing, it was true by the time that the source was quoted, or by the time the quoted source was written. So flip open to 1 Kings 8.8. 8. I need to uh, remind myself on this specific detail. <clears throat> 1 Kings 8.8. 8. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. Well, this book of Kings was written after or during um, being sent into exile. And so those polls were not there to the day that this book was compiled. But in the fact that the author was quoting another source, 
I just quoted, you just kind of lifted that source and put it in here. And it was true in the quoted source. And it was, um, and as it is quoted here, it is absolutely true. But time-wise, that truth, those poles were not still there. So it's helpful to know that multiple sources are coming together uh, to piece these stories together. And so it would make sense that this book was written after 561 BC because 561 is at the end of 2 Kings uh, and before the return in 538, most likely because it doesn't mention the return. And if the return had happened yet, then they most likely would have mentioned it. Uh, So that gives us a pretty narrow window, probably somewhere between 561 and 538. Kind of gives you an idea of when it was probably written. And the poles of the Ark were not still there at that time. Okay, here's the outline. Generally, First Kings starts with the Solomon narratives. And then and by chapter 12, it's moving into talking about the divided king and the sons of Solomon, uh, Rehobo- son of Solomon, Rehoboam, and then uh, the north with Jeroboam. And then uh, within that, there's some various pre-Elijah kings that, over four chapters. And then there's the Elijah narratives, which takes up a big chunk of text. And then, then there, there are the Elisha narratives, uh, which continue. There, um, there's not as many, but eight chapters there in Second Kings. And then there are various post-Elisha kings, both north and uh, this would yes, this would be north and south. And then Second Kings 17 is the crucial chapter on the uh, exile of Israel, the northern kingdom. 2 Kings 17, exile. And then you have the remainder of 2 Kings is about life in Judah alone. All right, tell me a little bit of what y'all know about exile. What is exile about? Why exile? What happened? Uh, who was involved? Just let's, let's get talking a little bit about um, the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, and exile. Tell me what you know. Exile was a curse from covenant breaking. Absolutely. It's, um, we'll see that under the Mosaic Covenant section here. Specifically, it is a curse, saying if you do not keep the commands of the Lord, the ultimate consequence is you'll be exiled. It was also cyclical that the Lord warned them over and over and chased them down with everything. <laughs> yeah with many prophets who tried to bring them back and hold them accountable and refused over and over to the point that he finally sent them into exile for a period of time until they repented mm-hmm. and returned. The Lord says, well, I've... I, the southern kingdom returned. Sure, yeah. And, and them with it. Right. And the Lord says, I've held up my hands all day to disobedient and contrary people, and they will not hear it, and they, they do not turn back. Who, uh, who took over the northern kingdom? Which kingdom? Assyria. And then who was the world power by the time the southern kingdom was taken over? Babylon. Babylon. Uh, those are helpful to know. The dates are also helpful to know. Uh, 722 is when uh, the northern kingdom, Assyria, was conquered. 586 is when the southern kingdom was conquered. Let's look at some of these, the messages and the theology here in the books of Kings. You know about Solomon and his temple and asking for wisdom and his great 
uh, display of wisdom and uh, the threat of cutting a child in half. Of course, he probably did not have real intention to do so, but in order to def- to decide or to figure out who was the mother, um, he he. He showed great wisdom in that case of judging. Um, throughout these stories, and, and of course, there's Solomon nosedives into, um, well, it's kind of a slow, slow decline because even from the very beginning, you can see his heart was never fully devoted to the Lord. Uh, but through not just the life of Solomon, but also the the wicked kings of the north and the um, the mixed bag, but mostly bad kings of the south, uh, you see these themes. The Mosaic Covenant is crucial to understand what's going on in kings. God isn't just out of the blue getting mad and saying, here, deal with this, here, deal with this. I hope you can handle this one. He's not just throwing a bunch of curveballs at his people. He has told them what the Lord requires. He's, he has told them uh, in his law, the consequences if they don't. Deuteronomy 28 lays out the blessings and the curses, blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. And here we see them happening with a disobedient and contrary people who keep turning their back. They, they get the consequences. Israel's and Judah's kings um, and the people by following the kings keep breaking these commands. You see agricultural disaster promised in Deuteronomy 28, and you see it happening in 1 Kings 18 and 2 Kings 4 through 8 in chapter 25. Uh, So you can go dig into those uh, this evening after dinner. You see disease uh, promised in Deuteronomy 28, and you see it happen in 2 Kings 15. You see military defeat promised in Deuteronomy 28, and you see it happen in 2 Kings 10, and then exile as a consequence of covenant breaking, which will get its own attention here in just a moment. Proper worship is an important part of this covenant relationship with the Lord. Uh, I think it's worth um, slowing down here for just a minute. Uh, Jeroboam, for example, we'll just go ahead and use him as an example of wickedness. He set up high places in First Kings 12, uh, I believe it was to Baal. Um, let me just flip over there. Um, Twelve twenty-five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see if this is Dan and Bethel. Um. Yes, verse 30, the people went as far as Dan to be before one. Uh, I believe Bethel, yes, he did so in Bethel, verse 32 as well. Yep, that's, uh, that's the north and the south. Isn't Bethel in the south? Yeah, as I understood it, it was strategic. He was trying to keep his people from bleeding over into Judah to go to Solomon's temple. Yes, oh, it was absolutely politically motivated. He was saying, you've gone to Jerusalem long enough. Um, you need to, here, come and worship. Look, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt and set up two golden calves. Saying, the people in Israel, they've, they've kind of dominated the interpretation of what happened with the law, um, and he's trying to turn their hearts to be loyal, politically at least, probably theologically as well, to, uh, to the northern kingdom. And so uh, I just couldn't remember where he had set them up. But you're right, it's Dan and Bethel. Verse 29 tells us that. Uh, and so there he's saying, you don't need to go to Jerusalem. 
proper worship is not that important. And so uh, one more excerpt here that I'd like to read you. This is, uh, go back, flip back a few chapters to 1 Kings chapter 8. This is the setting up of the temple. Solomon dedicated it after it was built. And uh, William, I, I love this last name, William Full of Love. Uh, you see that at the very bottom footnote there. He puts it like this. The Ark of the Covenant is brought, the temple is dedicated in chapter 8. As an important contrast to pagan temples with their plethora of idols, the only material item present is the Ark of God, which contains his law. Chapter 8, verse 9 says this. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. God had spoken by his word and made a covenant by his law, or the the law was a part of the covenant, made a covenant by his grace. Um, And it was that relationship and those words of God that were central to the worship of Israel. That's why there was nothing else uh, in the ark. And that's why this is, stands in stark contrast to the fact that these other nations had images of cows. They had multiple gods. They had these human inventions of worship. southern king yeah yeah um i would have to look into that because i know the lord commanded moses to make the bronze serpent he, he, moses, uh, sorry yeah, moses was commanded to make the bronze serpent mm-hmm. and the serpent kind of just hung around until by the time hezekiah was king mm. so there was a group of people that were setting up and worshiping, worshiping it gotcha and it yeah 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 and that just shows you the heart of of man to to turn these things into i mean as calvin says our hearts are idol factories that thing didn't have to be an idol, but it was one. Um, yeah, it's a good point. The exile is implied uh, as a just punishment because Israel has broken the law, and it is stated explicitly of the northern kingdom in Second Kings seventeen. As the as the northern kingdom fell to Assyria, this is how the author of Kings articulates the reason. It says this, and this occurred because. The people of Israel had sinned against the Lord, their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. It was also because of political power. It was also because of bad military alliances. But the underlying reason, the ultimate reason, is because they had turned their back on the Lord. And the Lord used all those things in punishment against the people. So let's talk about, talk about exile specifically, which is promised in the, the covenant here. 
there are some theoretical explanations as to why the nation went into exile. Again, as we just said, it could be that Israel made poor alliances. That would be the modern view. It could be that Yahweh lost the battle against other gods. You see that in the Moabite Stela. That would be their perspective, or our God's greater than your God. Um, it could be that Israel wasn't dedicated to Baal enough. Maybe they hadn't been worshiping Baal. And I bet you some of the pagans of uh, the Jews, Jews who had become pagans, would say that, oh, we didn't worship Baal enough. We didn't sacrifice enough of this. Um, and that's just because they didn't have true faith in Yahweh. But here's the real reason why they went into exile. It's because God was justly judging his people for their sin. That was promised as a punishment, and the Lord is faithful to his promises. It's a curse in Deuteronomy 28, and you see it happen to the northern kingdom in 2 Kings 17, and you see it happen to the southern kingdom of Judah in 2 Kings 24 and 25, right at the end there. I think it's helpful for us to note that um, the full return of God's people to the promised land happens when the king returns to the throne. Right? It, it has begun in Christ. Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus are now in that kingdom. And it will be, it'll reach its fullness. The exile will finally be over when Christ returns and wickedness is gone. When Christ actually eradicates the enemies of righteousness like Israel was supposed to do in the land, when he rules in justice like these kings were supposed to do, that's when the exile will fully be over because we'll finally be in God's presence in the land that he has promised this whole earth um, under his perfect reign, his reign from the line of David. A Davidic promise does not fail. And you see that in Second Samuel 7, that the promise was that we'll never depart from you. This, this rain will never depart from you. And in Deuteronomy 17, the expectation was that the kings were going to read the law. They were going to write their own copies of the law. They were going to be students of the law every single day. Uh, but we see that that did not happen. In fact, many of the kings of Israel, the northern king, are not even from the line of David. And they do not worship properly. They are wicked. And, um, and so you see there is a lot of focus in, these, in the book of Kings on, uh, the, the, on Judah because the Davidic covenant was preserved there. The line of David was preserved in Judah. There's a special, flip over to 1 Kings 15, special instance here where God's faithfulness is highlighted specially. Of course, we know that underlying every word of every page, God is faithful to his people and to his covenant, but it's explicitly called out here in 1 Kings 15, verses 4 and 5, and it says this, um, Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And this is when Abijam began to reign over Judah. Abijah from the line of, of David. And, and the Lord returned Abijam, the line of David, to the throne out of his covenant to David. And it says in verse 4, for David's sake, the Lord preserved that line of David there. 
because of that covenant he had made. So the Lord is continuing to be faithful. <clears throat> Look at this quote that's in slightly smaller font. Um, oh, interesting, I did not put the citation here on who this is. Oh, yeah, I did. It's from uh, Miles Van Pelt's uh, William Fuller Loves, page uh, 233. Um, Unconditionally, God has instituted his covenant with his people and has made sure promises, has made sure promises from which he will not turn. In the expression of life under the covenant, however, immediately after issuing such sure promises, God makes a conditionality clear. The presence of curses applied based on the behavior of the kings means that neither the temple nor the kingship will protect against the consequences of prolonged disobedience to the covenant. Uh, and all those examples in parentheses there uh, remind you uh, especially think of God's words to Solomon in 1 Kings 9, verse 6. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, but if you go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. Uh, and so what we see then is this constant failure of the human kings, and we see the need for Jesus, the ultimate and only good king, the kings are painted in a really negative light, almost hopeless. Some will say that there's a, a glimmer of hope in the very last few verses with Jehoiachin uh, in 2 Kings 25. Um, I think I'll spare us from going into that right now. There's one thing, there's, there's a lot of things I want to get into, but there's one really interesting thing here. Under God's word, patience, and punishment. God's word came through um, the prophets. God's authority was uh, illustrated through the kings. Uh, and the, pro- the priests also uh, had a crucial role. In, in, but but what, what I want to emphasize here is that the prophets were often up against the kings of Israel. Can you imagine being a king like uh, Jeroboam trying to set up your, your new idols so that your people can come and be faithful to your kingdom? And then this prophet who says they're speaking on behalf of the Lord comes in and tries to undermine you and say you're doing wrong stuff. There's going to be some butting of heads because there's absolutely a clashing of principles, not just principles, but clashing of allegiances the clashing of hearts between the kings and the prophets. Uh, and, and for those who are confronted and do um, humble themselves, what are some examples you can think of, of kings who actually heard the words of the prophet and repented? We've already mentioned Hezekiah. He's one. Josiah. Josiah. What about even before this book? Yeah, I mean, David, when he was confronted over uh, this, this a parable that he was told about a rich man who stole a sheep from a poor man, uh, David said, that's terrible. And the prophet said, that's you. And uh, he responded uh, in repentance. Um, so the true prophets were conflicting there with the kings. And the punishment that they prophesied came with delay. Jeroboam was like, Phew. You're going to prophesy this against me, but look, my kingdom's doing great. But still, God was patient, uh, and God did not 
strike them down immediately, uh, in part, especially in the southern kingdom, because of his, uh, for the sake of David and his promise to David. A lot of the writing prophets prophesied during the age of the kings. Uh, Isaiah was one of them, and actually many of the, the minor prophets were also prophesying during this time. One helpful thing, um, and then I want to talk about how the prophets conflicted against the Baal. Don't let me forget to talk about Baal here in a moment. I'm going to go ahead and skip what I was going to say about the other writing prophets. Isaiah, again, I was just going to talk something here about Isaiah. Um, let's just go back. I want to talk about Baal right now. The prophets, yes, were conflicting with the kings, but you'll also notice, especially with Elijah, uh, the prophets were conflicting also with the other gods. It seems like the miracles that Elijah and Elisha did were kind of random. It seems like it. But uh, this, uh, this author puts it this way. Uh, the, the miracles form a polemic against Baal worship. So all these things that Elijah and Elisha did, by controlling fire and rain and food, these are all direct attacks against Baal and Baal's prophets. Because Baal was supposed to be in control of these things. Baal was the storm god. Uh, specifically, lightning was his weapon and rain was his blessing. And so the fact that fire from heaven came... That, that is just a jab right at Baal, saying Baal's supposed to be in control of this, yet, yet the prophet of Yahweh was the one who was able to call lightning and fire from heaven. And nor was it a, an accident that control of rain and provision of water was a part of the miracles in the books of Kings. Baal was supposed to be the giver of rain. He was supposed to be then the source of food. But then you see God provide food in 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 4. And Baal was supposed to be this god who conquered the Judge River, who was his rival. But both Elijah and Elisha can strike the Jordan and command it to part. Now you're seeing Baal belittled time after time after time with all these miracles and Yahweh exalted. Uh, and then the fact that um, Baal was supposed to rise from the dead according to the Ugaritic Baal myth. Uh, in this annual cycle, he's supposed to rise from the dead. But it was Elijah and Elisha who raised the dead. Not themselves, but by the power of the true God, Yahweh. So all those miracles, uh, the prophets were out here um, trying to continue to um, speak God's word into a world that would not hear it against these specific gods. Isn't yes. really consistent with what we saw in Egypt as well, that the Lord attacks specific Egyptian gods mm-hmm. by turning the Nile to blood, the water to blood. Yeah. Yeah. And all of these different things he did were a direct attack at a specific Egyptian god to show them powerless. Yes, absolutely. So the consistency is... There. Yeah, absolutely. So it should be no surprise to us when God comes and attacks our little idols of money and success and relationship and whatever it is, reputation, when God comes and says, I have control over that part of your life too. Um, it is absolutely consistent. That's, that's our God, and he does it because he cares for his people. And he wants to see his people uh, worship him in spirit and in truth. Uh, you see, Christ is the king from the line of David. Uh, that's just going to power through here, these Christ and, and the book of Kings. Um, 
I'm not quite sure what I meant by that bullet point at the top of the back page there. Repent while God is patient for his coming judgment is just. Um, I suppose we still in Christ have that opportunity to repent. Second uh, Peter 3.9 Exile and captivity, God's people await freedom and restoration. And we see that in Luke 4. Uh, J-Bap is, you know, it says J-Bap. That's actually, that's how the scholars refer to John the Baptist because they don't want to write out his whole name. So you'll go read like high academic scholarly work and they just, it's J-Bap. Um, so I apologize. I did that to save space and, I'm, and I realized, well, there you go. Uh, um, John the Baptist uh, was, is it, is it antitype of Elijah? Uh, Jesus, greater than Elijah. And then you see the, the importance of the temple fulfilled in Christ, especially as we saw in the sermon this morning, that Christ is the new access to the presence of God. Uh, the Lord himself will be the light uh, for his people on that last day, and that temple will no longer be needed. It is at this point no longer needed because Christ in his body has given us that new access, and his church now is that place. You see that in 1 Corinthians 3. Okay, I'm going to wrap us up. I apologize to kind of be all over the place, just sporadic, and then just say, and now we're done. But let me pray. <clears throat> Lord, would you take these rich truths that show how you have been working, and that show your patience, and that show uh, your authority. Would, would you take these things, uh, let them sink into our hearts in our lives, and our minds? Would we think about these things? Would we speak about these things? And would we, would we live consistently with this good news of Christ? Uh, we thank you uh, for this group. We thank you for this, this church. And we thank you ultimately for Jesus who has given us access to the Father, to you. And it's even in him that we pray now. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.